Why would a little child start writing his mother's biography? As a child of a parent who has addiction, you learn a lot of coping strategies to try and help that parent to occupy them, to distract them. And I realized when I was about seven or eight that one of the ways I could keep my mother's attention on me was to sit down and write her memoirs. You know, I'm an eight-year-old. I'm not really writing her memoirs, but it gave her someone to tell her stories to or her life. She felt, as a working-class woman, she felt very overlooked. So they sat down together, and every time they would start the same way. She always said, for Elizabeth Taylor, who knows nothing about love. And, you know, and then, and then I'm pretty sure the next line would be once upon a time in Glasgow. So, you know, something <laughs> very fundamental like that. Douglas Stewart's first novel, Shaggy Bane, a story about a young boy and his alcoholic mother, won the 2020 Man Booker Prize. For the next hour, enjoy a lively conversation between Danish critic Sunarif Pia and Douglas Stewart. I've been looking so much forward to meeting you because I had this strange and wrong feeling that I already knew you somehow through reading Shoggy Bane, but that is really a presumption which is not correct, right? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the sense that this is a book about a boy who has some things in common with your own life, but it's fiction. It's a novel. That's right. It is, it is certainly a novel. Um, it was a book that actually took me 10 years to write. And although I draw on a lot of autobiographical details of my own life, I grew up in the same uh, socioeconomic poverty background that Shuggy did. I was raised on government benefits. I am the youngest son of a single mother who struggled and lost her battle with addiction. Um, and certainly I was queer in a place that was incredibly masculine, but, but it is a work of fiction. I use all of those themes and those feelings to, to, inform, to inform the book. We are going to spoil everything about this book. It won't matter because you can read this book after having read it once. You can read it again and again <laughs> and again. So if you haven't had time to read it, you should uh, and you will. But I wanted to ask you, this, is, this seems like a novel of some sort of, it's, it has 400 and something pages, but originally <laughs> it had 900? I, originally it, uh, it had 900 pages, but they were single spaced. It actually would have been about 1600 pages had it been published. <laughs> you know, uh, I was giving Knausgaard a run for his money. It was, uh, But, uh, you know, when I first started to sit down and write the book, I I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't have any thoughts about what I was trying to achieve. It was just really all about feeling and expression. And I wouldn't allow myself, you know, I'm a boy that grew up in the working classes of Scotland. And so literature had always felt like an other thing to me, something that wasn't really for me that I couldn't, you know, academia and English just wasn't for boys like me. And so when I sat down and I began to write Shaggy Bane, I wouldn't allow myself to say, oh, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to write something, because it was too intimidating. I also, you know, I don't have an MFA in creative writing. I had to teach myself my own craft. Um, I actually am a textile designer, or that's what I trained as. It's an incredibly pragmatic Scottish industry. And, you know, it was, I come from a long line of tradesmen. So that was a very uh, a smart thing for my family to send me into. But I wouldn't admit that it was going to be a novel. And so I almost, I actually began the book in the middle, or what became the book. Chapter 13 was the first thing I wrote about the two brothers on the face of the coal mine on the slag bings. And then I went to chapter 22 and back to chapter 8. And, but I could, I could really envision every single chapter because I'm quite a visual thinker. And so I wouldn't sit down and write a chapter. They were almost like vignettes or short stories to me until I could really see what the characters were wearing on their feet, how they looked at each other, how they were, you know, the wind was moving through the scene, whatever that was, um, until it was a series of pictures in my mind. And then I would, I would write it. But that's why it became uh, almost 1,600 pages, because I had no <laughs> discipline and I had no sort of overarching goal. And certainly after the first draft, when you write something that big, it becomes uh, a lot to try and get into a tamed form. That was what I was thinking. I do a lot of editing, and I would have been a bit horrified at the thought of taking anything <laughs> out of this wonderful novel. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult, but... It happened. It seems like a complete novel. It seems written 
it's like a breeze. Uh, the the language is so beautiful. You say you don't have an MFA in literature. I don't know why you would want to have that because obviously <laughs> you have literature in you. And and I think I've heard you say at some point that uh, it's actually your mother who made you a writer, in the sense that uh, you right. tried to help her to write her autobiography. Yeah, that's 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 right. I didn't actually realize that until much later, until I was talking about the book. But, you know, my mother and I were often together alone. You know, I didn't I was quite a lonely kid. My mother suffered with alcoholism from when I was about my earliest memories until I lost her when I was 16. And as a kid, as a child of a parent who has addiction, you learn a lot of coping strategies to try and help that parent to occupy them, to distract them, to keep them happy. And I realized when I was about seven or eight that one of the ways I could keep my mother's attention on me was to sit down and write her memoirs. You know, I'm an eight-year-old. I'm not really writing her memoirs, but it gave her someone to tell her stories to or her life. She felt, as a working-class woman, she felt very overlooked, not only by the broader world, but even in the community we were in. You know, she, she didn't feel like anyone really heard her or saw her struggle. There was so much stigma around addiction that it was often sort of kept at home, you know, and people didn't want to look at it. And so my mother would sit me down and I would sit at her feet and um, we never really got very far, um, but she always started it in exactly the same way. And that's the part I remember. And she always said, you know, the dedication. And she said, for Elizabeth Taylor, who knows nothing about love. And, you know, and then, and then I'm pretty sure the next line would be once upon a time in Glasgow. So, you know, something, something very uh, fundamental like that. But... Uh, the Elizabeth Taylor thing uh, for my mother was really about, you know, Elizabeth Taylor as an actress is an incredibly glamorous woman, but as the character she plays, she's really difficult. She's never, uh, obedience not the right word, but she never sort of is subservient. She always is forthright, difficult. She demands love. She's, she's bigger than the screen. She also had well-documented, uh, you know, struggles with love herself, with romance, and also with addiction. And my mother felt she had the exact same things, but whereas we sort of, you know, my mother was a little angry about it because she felt we, uh, we really celebrated Elizabeth Taylor, whereas she was, you know, really vilified for it. But frankly, she is Elizabeth Taylor in your novel. I mean, the, the picture I have of this uh, woman, Shoggy Bain's mother, is a very beautiful, attractive, dark-haired uh, woman who never leaves the house almost no matter what her state is, without dressing up and looking glamorous. That's right. Um, you know, part of what I wanted to do, I wanted to do several things, is um, even though I was poor as a kid, there can sometimes be a misconception that when you're poor, you might not have pride in your appearance. And I actually found the inverse of that. My mother would never let us go over the door without looking immaculate. We almost looked like we were going to church every day. And my God, that was annoying as a kid, you know? And the amount that you get bullied for that, um, it was was just enormous. But for my mother, pride and shame were very close together. Mm. And no matter what was happening at home, what we had, what we didn't have, um, she just didn't want the world to know that. So how we looked and how we carried ourselves and also how clean our house was, how well appointed it was. We didn't have very fine things, but it was immaculate. And that was important to my mother. It was also something that working class women had control over when they didn't have control over an awful lot of other things. But I wanted to use that almost in the book as a way to just make Agnes as big and as technicolor as possible. Glasgow can be quite a gray backdrop. It's very <laughs> masculine. And she is just this very bright character. But her her veneer of how fantastic she looks, how vibrant she is, belies what's happening on the inside because she's disintegrating as a character. She's coming apart and almost like a flower that's fading. The more she is wilting, the more luminous, colorful she becomes. And that as well was part of um, my, my own mother's coping mechanism with addiction. You know, it was, it was the contradiction of her. So, Shaggy Bain. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about Shaggy Bain. He, in, in the beginning of the book, he is at, at the other end of the story that you're really telling because it's mm -hmm. after his, he's alone. 
He's alone. He's alone, and he's also coping. Mm -hmm. uh, and one thing he is not really coping with is the horrible uh, linen he has on his bed because it has different colors, <laughs> and he thinks his mother would really hate that. Uh -huh. But so it's it's really ingrained in him. But tell me a bit about Shaggy Bane as you as he came out as a character for you. Yeah. Um, Shuggy was a really fun character for me to write, especially as a child, because I wanted to write about this little boy who did nothing but love his mother and is almost an engine of love in her life. You know, Agnes in the book is almost the sun at the center of the universe until she starts to collapse in on herself. But throughout it all, Shuggy orbits her like a moon and cannot help ultimately. He can't get out of her orbit. But he is the youngest son of three children, and he has a very different perspective to the other siblings that he has. And he sees his mother in a different way. And that has a lot to do with the, the miracle of children sometimes, is they can deal with incredibly difficult things if it's all they know. You know, they don't have power of judgment. They don't know that there's something else that can be happening. They just manage and, and push on through with what they have. But Shuggy, much like his mother, um, because she's very important to him, he's quite a precocious little boy, he's fussy. <laughs> you know, he often talks to adults in the most inappropriate tone. And he, he, several times through the books, he puts a nurse in her place. He almost, you know, addresses them in that way. So he, was, he gives some comic relief as well. But, it, but what happens before he has any concept of himself is he's othered by the other boys and men around him. It's not that the other boys and men are wrong. It's just a time of extreme extremely narrow masculinity, you know? I grew up in a very industrial city where men did very hard, thankless jobs that were often life-threatening, to go down and get coal from the earth, to make ships, to bend steel. And we never, when our fathers came home, when our uncles came home, we never said, are you okay? You know, are you happy? Are you meeting all of your dreams? You know, do you have any other kind of self-expression? They just did it. And we never asked them, you know, we know so much more about mental health today. But then Shuggy is incapable of those things. He's a very sort of effeminate, fussy little boy, and they just don't know what to do um, with him. So he is othered before he has any sense of himself. You know, he's quite a pure character at the beginning of the book. He's, as all children, he's, you know, he just is himself. And then when he's othered, he spends a lot of, a lot of the book is about the question of why can't you be normal? You know, yeah. people say that to Agnes, people say that to The word Shuggy. normal is really... Yeah. It's shocking. Why can't you be normal, Bane? Yeah, why can't you be normal? Why can't this be normal? And, um, and what is normal, yeah. you know, I think is the thing. And, and, and actually, it's not like they're abnormal, they're just themselves. That's also a little bit about the, um, the cliche of working class communities. We often think there's an awful lot of solidarity there, and there certainly is. But sometimes if you can't fit in amongst that, the solidarity is used to exclude you. Mm. Um, you know, there's, you, poverty can bring problems with mobility, and so you really have to fit in within the community. But anyway, Shuggy spends a lot of the book trying to correct his own behavior. If he thinks if he can walk like a man, like how the other boys do, if he can kick a ball, he has no interest in it. And one of the things he spends a lot of the book doing is reading historical football scores almost in a little scorebook, like they're a novena or a rosary. And if he can just take them in, somehow it will bring a change in him. And that was a lot of my own personal experience with homophobia, because it's a strange thing to say that homophobia has power. But one of its strengths is, is it sometimes forces children to believe that you can change who you are. And if mm. you change who you are, then people will like you more or accept you or you'll fit in, it will be less painful. And Shuggy really falls for that. But at the same time, there is something about the character of Shuggy Bane which is so resilient to all this. He does it, but he, I mean, that's just my reading, but it's as if, I mean, he's trying to walk like a real man, like a, you know, with... So there's room for his cock, as it says, with his legs apart and his boots. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's like a theater. He's, he's a, it's, it doesn't feel as if he's really trying hard enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he spends a lot of time doing it. I mean, and he walks in circles and circles. He walks, he does it so much, he tramples grass fields flat. Yeah. Within the book, you know, he's determined. And it actually, is his, his, one of the things that I wanted to write in the book is it's his, oldest, his older brother who tries to teach him to do that. Now, his brother, no one loves Shuggy more than his older brother. They have a very deep, profound love. But part of the part of the journey of gay pride and the gay liberation movement, whatever you want to call it, is not only to 
help gay people feel visible and loved, but it was also to help people at that time understand that there can be a happy future for gay people, to, to, to educate everybody, really. Mm. And this is a time where homophobia didn't have any counterbalance. It, it isn't that the people being homophobic against Shuggy are always bad, it's just how society was. Yeah. You know, and that's true not just for Glasgow, that's all around the world in the early, the late 70s, the early 80s. I think it's, I don't know about Denmark, but, you know... I'm sure it was in Naples and in Detroit. Uh, I'm yeah. sure it's in all these places. Um, but yeah, so so Shoggy keeps doing that, and and he's struggling with that while his mother's struggling with other things, and it's almost uh, they both have their own separate lives going on that they almost won't tell each other about too. But yet they're together in their loneliness. I'm so happy to hear you talk, and I have to say that you have also written two short stories, which mm. you can find on the New Yorker, and you read them yourself. But you should hear Dr. Stewart read from his book. And would you read a little extract so that we can hear how you... Because the, there is also <laughs> an audio book, but it's not read by you. <laughs> it's very good, but it's not by you. So if you will Thank tell you. us where we are in, in, yeah. uh, in the book and read Absolutely. We are about halfway through the book. And Agnes, you know, is a very proud mother. After she's been abandoned by her husband she does descend into addiction. But uh, about the halfway point through the book, she falls in love with a new man, and he seems to be everything she wants, and he's a very upstanding man. And he's about to take her out for her first date in a very long time, and she's excited. But she turns to Shuggy and asks Shuggy to teach her how to dance. She doesn't, she's a bit worried that she's so out of time, she won't know how the kids are dancing in the club. Shuggy is eight years old, what he would know about it, uh, I don't know. But anyway, they have this beautiful moment, and he teaches her how to dance to Thriller by Michael Jackson, which is also <laughs> probably not, you know, he uh, misunderstands the assignment, let's say that. <laughs> but they're in the front room and Shuggy is dancing and his mother is egging him on. They're having, a, they're having a moment. The song changed and Shuggy kept dancing. It was a self-conscious shimmy now. His hands burst open like fireworks and his head flicked as though he had long, sexy hair. He dipped and popped using his hips too much for a boy, and he emoted along with the song like it was a grand opera, not a three-bar pop factory hit written for 13-year-old girls. <laughs> Brilliant. What a smooth mover, she said. I'm going to do all this up the dancing next week. Eugenio just die. Just you wait. He was enjoying her attention. Something inside him flowered, and he started popping his body like he'd seen the black boys on telly do. The self-consciousness left him, and he spun, and he shimmied, and he shook in all the telly ways. He was made cat sleep when he let out a sharp scream. It was high-pitched and womanly, and it was the same shriek he let loose when Leek leapt out of the dark at him. Shuggy stood with his fingers outstretched, frozen in time. He hadn't seen them at first, and he would never know how long they had been there, but across the street, in the window of the front room, stood the Macavenies. They pressed against the large glass window, and they were gutting themselves with laughter. The window throbbed as they beat their hands against it with glee, and Dirty Mouse did a little sexy girlish pirouette, and Shuggy realized that that was him. He looked at his mother. When had she noticed? She only looked up at him and took a draw on her fag. Without looking out the window, she spoke through clenched teeth. If I were you, I would keep dancing. I can't. The tears were coming. You know they only win if you let them. I can't. His arms and his fingers were still outstretched and frozen like a dead tree. Don't give them the satisfaction. Mammy, help, I can't. Yes, you can. She was still smiling. Just hold your head up high and gee it loudy. She was no use at maths homework, and some days you could starve rather than get a hot meal from her. But Shuggy looked at her now and understood this was where she excelled. Every day, with the makeup on and her hair done, she climbed out of her grave and held her head high. When she had disgraced herself with drink, she got up the next day, put on her best coat, and faced the world. When her belly was empty and her wains were hungry, she did her hair and let the world think otherwise. It was hard at first to start moving again, to feel the music, to go to that other place in your head where you kept your confidence. It didn't go together, the shuffling feet and the jangly limbs, but like a slow train, it caught speed, and soon he was flying again. 
He tried to tone down the big showy moves, the shaking hips and the big sweeping arms, but it was in him, and as it poured out, he found he was helpless to stop it. Yeah. Thank you. You almost make me cry again. <laughs> so, this is a novel where you can cry and you can laugh, but it's it's there is something very light in it because this is a family falling apart, but this is also resilience. It's 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 very interesting. You must have made a very I wouldn't say stern, but but I mean a decision about how to tell a story which is heart-wrenching without tearing us apart yeah I mean I think when you love a parent who has addiction first and foremost you love them and so no matter what you go through that doesn't alter the love that you have for them and and the parent it doesn't alter the love that the parent has for the child but I also knew that to be humanity I knew it to be the Glaswegian spirit you know one of the things about the city that I think is really interesting is often very opposing things come together. There can be incredible tenderness with violence. There can be sadness and then this huge humor at the, in the middle of it. You know, there's a bit of rivalry between Glasgow and Edinburgh, the two large cities in Scotland. And the saying is, is you would rather go to a Glaswegian funeral than an Edinburgh wedding. Because <laughs> you're just going to have more fun with Glaswegians during a hard time than with rich people in Edinburgh. And in a way, it's kind of true, you know. And, you know, I've, I've always found part of the remarkable thing about the Glaswegian spirit is in the hardest of times, people really do try to use humor to lift themselves up, to get through. Sometimes all you can do is laugh and you don't have any other means to like make things different. And so I just wanted to celebrate that. I also wanted the reader to feel a little bit tense because, you know, Shuggy doesn't have any control as a kid. He doesn't have agency over what's about to come his way. So whether that is violence or tenderness or humor or sadness, and so the reader should also feel a little bit off keel or, or that little bit of tension on the page. I, I will tell you something which may seem strange, but this is a scene before she goes, Agnes goes out with Eugene, who is, as you said, a, a rather handsome and, and wonderful fellow until he does the impossible thing. But, but uh, it's actually when it starts going well that you really mm -hmm. get scared while reading because you, you kind of glide into this disaster, but having the love of it and the fun of it to keep you alive. And then when she gets sober, which she does at a certain point and meets this man, you start, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it gets to be a harder read somehow. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, I, I, can, I, I can understand that. And, and one of the things about Agnes is I wanted her to be almost centered or stuck on the stage like it was a Greek tragedy. But the men in her life have so much mobility. Mm. I mean, they're taxi drivers and they're just sort of zipping around the city. And Eugene comes into her life and he, he is an archetype of a hero and he believes <laughs> it himself and she almost uh, believes it herself. In fact, they go to a country and Western club and she dresses up in all of her fringe and frills and he dresses up as a sheriff. Yeah. He really, truly <laughs> believes in himself that much. but. You know, it's a glorious time in their life, or in Agnes's life. She is her most radiant. She's her happiest. She finds work. She really repairs herself and her family. And her children, her two sons who love her, just feel great. But a lot of what I was thinking about is, first of all, you know, how often um, men have an oversized role and how they can affect the fate of a woman. And I found that in my own life, it's as true in Tessa the Durbervilles in the 1890s. Mm. Um, it's a thing in literature. But, you know, my mother is a single mother even, you know, was shunned often because we didn't have a dad at home. There wasn't a man in the house. And so there, she had, there was a need, um, a societal need for us to be a complete unit. And Eugene arrives like that almost as a, maybe it's a thing for working class communities. Maybe it was the 80s. But Eugene arrives almost as the missing puzzle piece. Mm. And he believes himself as the hero. He sees Agnes as this really glorious woman. And, and of course you're normal. You can't possibly have a drink problem because look at you. You're amazing. Um, and she. And also perhaps, I mean, if she didn't have, or if she hadn't had this drinking problem, she wouldn't have looked his way because she is glamorous compared to the men who surround her. Yeah, she is. She is. Um, she's definitely out of their league. Mm. Um, and you know, uh, and but yeah, but he he thinks that now that he's around, everything will be fine. You know, it's sometimes the heroes fall, you know, they think they can fix anything. And she, <laughs> she falls for it. Yeah. 
she falls for him in a big way. He also there's another woman who is trying. I mean, he has a sister mm-hmm. who knows mm-hmm. Agnes and who is against this mm-hmm. liaison. So it's not just that he's a hero. The hero comes with someone on the back of the horse who is mm-hmm. who is going to ruin this also. Yeah, in the back of the taxi. In really, the back the of bla- the taxi. The black, yeah. <laughs> the black stallion. Yeah, I'm probably not thought of really well in in taxi circles in <laughs> Glasgow after this book, um, but. But yeah, what Agnes is, I mean, I don't think I'll be going to the Christmas dinner, but put it that way. For sure. But, uh, but yeah, Agnes falls in love with Eugene, but Eugene doesn't reveal to her that Agnes's biggest foe is the woman who is living across the road. And from the moment they meet, they're at odds. It's a very devout Catholic community. Agnes comes into town all beads and angora, and she's moving house, but she dresses like a Hollywood movie star, and the women see her. The mine has just been closed, and they have very real worries. And oftentimes when we see someone who has this like real sense of self-worth, I, I really admire Agnes's self-worth, but when they almost, when you really know the truth of their life, but they're projecting this aura about themselves, it's very human to want to pick at that. Mm. And the women very quickly want to bring her down to their level. Who do you think you are? And so Agnes is almost caught in this triangle of reputation, of, of uh, you know, how do you fit in in this very small community? It is, it is about otherness on many levels, I think, mm-hmm. because also there's this detail, now you mentioned uh, religion, that she is, there's Catholic and Protestant. I don't know, we, I think we mainly associate this with, with an Irish problem, mm-hmm. but it's certainly Scottish as well, because uh, she is neither nor, or both and. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and this is a difficult split, and there's a a, a very difficult scene, at least, to read where mm-hmm. the daughter, there is a sister, Shoggy has a sister, mm-hmm. who goes out to find her elder brother and is held up by a gang of, mm-hmm. of small kids who ask her Celtic or Rangers, mm-hmm. which is, of course, football, but mm-hmm. has to do with religion. Yeah, um, Glasgow's, I mean, I myself are both Catholic and Protestant. That's how my family sort of came together. But even when my own mother married my Protestant father, her family didn't come to the wedding. And this is the 70s. You know, Glasgow has a very proud history of Irish immigration, but it often brought some troubles with it because it was a very Protestant city. And here are the Catholics coming. Uh, The Catholics were often ghettoized or they stayed in certain parts of the city. And, you know, it's not the same violence as Northern Ireland experience because it wasn't about identity. But it's a strange thing to say, but it often went down to a recreational level about which football team did you support? (laughs) How do young men identify? How do they form into gangs? And it's a thing that really exists within the working class. But much like homophobia, it has lots of different frequencies. At the time, at home, you know, my father would say terrible things to my mother, but they would think it was banter. You know, and mm. now it's religious hate talk yeah. in 2020. <laughs> there's no doubt about it. And then sometimes it could be violence out on the streets between young men. But religion's really important in this story because it's another way that people who have exactly the same things, socioeconomically, they're living in the same houses on the same streets, find ways to divide themselves. Um, and I just thought that was profoundly sad. There's also a, a priest at the school where mm-hmm. Shoggy tries to fit in and doesn't fit in either. There's something problematic about the priest. I don't feel there's any, there's at least not much good said about religion in, in this book. Yeah, maybe I overstepped the line. <laughs> I revealed my own hand. But I, I, I found religion as a tool to divide us when we were younger. And we were often indoctrinated into it and taught we had to think poorly of Catholics or poorly of Protestants, and there was absolutely no reason for it. How do you do that if you're both Protestant and Catholic? Well, I always felt like the kid that fell between two single mattresses because (laughs) no one really wanted to claim me. And, you know, I lived in a Catholic house, and yet I went to a Protestant school. And so actually at 14, 15, I would roam around with a Protestant gang, and we'd throw bottles at Catholic boys, and then I would go (laughs) home to my Catholic mother. And so it was senseless, I think, is is the large part of it. But part of it was just that, like many things, when you're a young man, it's about fitting in. You just need to fit in. It's, uh, it's, it can be a matter of, you know, of personal safety. This otherness is also actually the, the, about the country, Scotland, mm-hmm. which is, of course, United Kingdom, but which has an otherness compared to the rest of the UK. It's, right. it's, uh, there is a strong sense in the book that Glasgow was 
totally taken apart by Thatcher. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, for anyone that doesn't know Glasgow, Glasgow is the largest city in Scotland, but it was also one of the most, uh, it had an enormous economic boom, which hence all the Irish immigration. It was known as the second city in the empire. You know, empire is a terrible word today, but that's, <laughs> we shouldn't be proud of it. But, but it really was, and it really boomed and flourished. And it was done on the backs of the working class. We had really big, booming industries. But by the, the, the mid to the end of the 20th century, those industries are starting to falter. We're, the Western world's deindustrializing. And Margaret Thatcher, when she comes into power, decides she's just not going to prop up any British industry. It will either, you know, fold or fail on its own, its, its own merits, its own values. And, uh, and so unemployment in the United Kingdom went to about 14% when I was a child, but in Glasgow it went to 26%. And it stayed there for most of my youth. But the otherness comes from the idea of there was a profound sense that the government was not going to come to your aid. We weren't of any political uh, currency to the Conservative government because Glasgow was never going to vote for them. So there was no desire to come and help us, to bring jobs there, to, you know, to get our votes. And just as a young man, you know, I saw we started as a, my life as a very proud working class family. And then I was plunged into the underclass. My mother couldn't get work. You know, a lot of the young men around me couldn't get work. There was migration to other parts of the Commonwealth to just to find, you know, manufacturing jobs. And so we, I think we just felt not valued. And when people don't feel valued, we know that really murky things can sweep into the society. In no time. In no time. In no time, yeah. And I think what happened was it happened so quickly. I talk about it being a long period of time, but actually the deindustrialization happened so quickly that people didn't have anywhere to turn. There wasn't a phase out. There wasn't a plan to like retrain men or to bring other industry. It just happened. So if you were laid off at the shipyards, you couldn't go to the coal mines because those closed too. You couldn't go to Ravens, Craig Steel. Uh, Linwood automobiles had closed. And so men who for hundreds of years had been of the manufacturing class couldn't go work. You've said somewhere that uh, that the men in Glasgow don't say much. Mm -hmm. Why? <laughs> ah, it's hard. I think because we'd never invited them to. I think it was a really complex thing. Like I said, the men did really difficult work, and we'd never asked them to express their tenderer feelings. That's a very new thing, I think, for a lot of men. And for me, I, you know, Shuggy Bain stands in quite a long line of literary tradition. There's a lot of books in the British tradition that look at the working class, but they oftentimes focus on heterosexual men at the time. Mm -hmm. And because of my own upbringing, my world as a young queer boy, but also being a mother's boy, right? I was a real mammy's boy. Uh, <laughs> I had my no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell. But um, it just meant my entire world was women. Um, and as a young boy, I was aware that was a wee bit weird, but as a writer, I'm like, oh my God, that was amazing. That was really amazing because I got to see things, I got to see worlds that young boys normally don't get to see. My mother couldn't afford a babysitter. So no matter what she did, I trailed behind her. <laughs> and women were not only the strength of, of this city for me, because they were dealing not only with changing a changing world, they were also dealing with their families and the men. But they were also the ones that had the ability to process what was happening emotionally mm. and also had, you know, had the expressions. They were the ones you wanted to listen to. And so when I wrote Shuggy Bain, I actually, in a way, wanted to exclude men and I wanted only to focus on women. You know, Agnes starts in a power, in a place of real sorority. She has lots of really good friends. Yeah. And then it's about her journey with other women for most of the book. But she's already from the start not entirely happy with her female friends because they are just, they've given up somehow, she thinks. Mm -hmm. that, well, how is it that you express it, that there's no makeup, uh, yeah. that, that you have a wonderful se sentence about that, and, and, and she just sees them and she wants to go dancing. She wants to have fun. She wants to have her life back. Yeah. They're playing cards. The op one of the opening scenes when we first meet Agnes is they're playing cards on a Friday night. They're just gathered <laughs> together. And Agnes has had these friends since she was 14, and she remembers when they were young women, all the fun they had, all the singing and dancing and, and going to pubs underage and getting in. And she sort of turns around and looks at her friends, and her friends don't want to go dancing. They don't even want to dance to the record she plays. And she's looking out at the city, and she almost falls out the window because she's so... She just wants to be in the lights. She mm. wants to be out there. She wants to be flying. 
Um, and, you know, I think part of writing the book is I had to try and find a place of empathy for my own mother, who I felt that with, that sort of feeling that she trapped and the feeling that, oh, this is what life is. You know, mm. this is what I get when I'm 45. This is She this lives is with it. her parents, which... She also lives with her parents, yes. Um, and, you know, a lot of the beginning of the book, people around her say, you know, lower your expectations. You know, yeah. you're too much. You're too much. Why do you want that? And actually, she has very humble dreams. She wants, you know, a little bit of glamour, a little bit to be adored. And don't we all, like, I think we all want a little bit of excitement. Yeah. That's a very fair thing to want. And in fact, all she wants is a house with a front door of its own. She wants to stop living in a tower block. But, and in fact, she's not too much. It's the world around her that's not enough. And, um, and that's really sort of the refrain for Agnes through the book. I, I think one of the very strong things about the way you write the book is that the horrors turn up kind of not like sensations, but with because she has dreams. You say they're not they're humble dreams, but I mean she has left one man mm -hmm. uh, to live with Shock, mm -hmm. uh, the taxi driver, and uh, this is why she's ended up at her parents' place. Mm -hmm. So she has already done something which I suppose is rather out of place at that time, mm -hmm. uh, and and then. Shark is not just riding his taxi, he's riding a lot of other women too. <laughs> I'm sorry for the expression, but... Uh, but it I've seems never to... heard that before, but thank you. <laughs> but he seems to, you know, it's, it's, it's all in a day's work or a night's shift. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's this talk about a house with its own That's front right. door. Yeah. And, and Shark lures her into this. Yeah, Shug, I mean, I don't often think that any of the characters in the book are good or bad. I think they're just reacting to the time they're in. I don't like to moralize about them, but... You can, you can moralize a little about Shug. Yeah, he's a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> he's an absolute bastard. And and in many ways, he's a, he's addicted in the same way Agnes is, but he's addicted to the control he exerts over women. Mm. When a woman, when he makes a woman adore him or want him sexually, then he feels less great about them, and that makes his ego. You know, he likes... He He likes the reflection of them. And so he cheats serially on Agnes. And Agnes is a very faithful wife. She loves him. She wants his, his attention. But he makes a promise that he's going to move the family a fresh start. They're going to move to a new house. And Glasgow has many beautiful neighborhoods, many, many beautiful neighborhoods and very expensive houses. And they drive on from the center of the city to the outside and she passes it. She passes all these gorgeous gardens and she gets caught up in her dreams and, and he doesn't tell her where he's taking her. And it's, a, it's, it's a, a tense moment, but it's a beautiful moment. You know, she's, she carries away with it and the children are excited and they end up in a mining town um, is where it is. And they end up in a mining town a couple of days after the mines closed or around about that period. And so that's already falling into disrepair. And, And he decides, to, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but he abandons her in the cruelest way because he also wants her to keep desperately wanting him back, to come back, because it suits his ego. You know, he, he feels so low about himself, or I don't know. But, you know, sometimes people do that. They can't leave you in a decent way. They can't say, we're done, thank you. <laughs> This is the end of it. They've got to ghost you. They've got to keep you hanging on because your desperation suits their failing egos. Mm. We nailed him. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a bastard. He's right. a bastard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so she, so it's 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 a f horrible place they end up. Yeah, it, I mean, I don't know that it's horrible. It's a place that <laughs> it's a place that would have been a really. I'm trying your patience. I can feel that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want. I mean. Honestly, it would have been a wonderful place if there'd have been jobs, but it's a place that's incredibly remote. There was only one industry and then that closed and no other jobs came to town. So it was full of very proud, hardworking families, but they just caught that place at the wrong time. Um, and so it's a horrible time in a good place is a better way to say it. You're, very, you're being very diplomatic about it. <laughs> I want to be able to go home sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be turned away at customs. <laughs> <laughs> Would you tell me just a little bit about how you make, this is a good example, I think, of how you make uh, something that is really down and out and squalor and not pretty, tiny rooms with not very many furniture in it, still have a wealth of life in it? Yes. Um, 
You know, I think there's a thing, in the United Kingdom, books can often feel like they're the realm of the middle class or the upper class. And whenever you tell a working class story, uh, the middle class can kind of say, well, why are you telling us this? And the working <laughs> class can say, don't tell anyone that. You know, and so you almost in a way can't win um, as a working class writer when you want to write about something quite truthfully and talk about it. You know, even my elderly aunt would have, if you'd have written a line that said, we had a yellow tablecloth on the table. She would have said, nobody wants to know you've got a yellow tablecloth, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I had always understood, even if you told a difficult story, that there's dignity in the details. You, if you pay close attention, if you really build this world with care and with love and with clarity, then that's it. All you can do as a writer is be a chronicler sometimes. And I understood those rooms. I'm also a visual thinker. And I understood that most people who read the book would never have been to Glasgow, didn't know who Thatcher was, might have never had come into contact with addiction. And so I thought, well, this book, I wanted it to be as immersive as possible so that people, if they were going to get to know Agnes and Shuggy, they would know them deeply and they would know the world and they could feel it and smell it and touch it. And, and a lot of that comes from textiles too, you know, the texture, really being interested in the whole tactile experience. Um, but I wanted it to be immersive because I realized many people wouldn't really know that. They might not understand the world. And you've certainly succeeded because I think one of the things that happens when you read this book is that the characters move in with you as well. You move into their rooms mm -hmm. and they move into your heart and, and mind in, the, in that sense. I was wondering, now you, you've said that there is a tradition for writing about working class, middle middle mm -hmm. working class and men and and mm -hmm. and you have moved into a feminine uh, universe but the tradition that you write in if i can say that i mean you were told you you were not part of it how did you conquer it i mean i didn't actually for the 10 years that i wrote shaggy bane i didn't know it would ever be published and it didn't need to be published for me was, that's not meant to be a grand thing to say the 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 reason why i wrote the book was to write the book um, and to have it published felt very much out of my control. And in fact, when I sent it out for consideration, it was rejected 44 times by all the major <laughs> publishers. In fact, my agent stopped telling me after 20 times because I was so dejected. Um, I'd worked 12 years on this thing and people, you know, part of the problem or part of the response was is, where is Glasgow? Who wants to know about this? And, and all of these different things. But I had understood that maybe there was a heart to the book and that Agnes's story is quite universal. And certainly whether you're, uh, whether you're gay or not, many of us have often felt othered or not felt like a place of belonging. And so I understood this as a human story, not a, a specific story. But I never knew it was going to be published. And for me, it was just about creating the work. And so when it was rejected, although I was devastated, I could I could keep going. I could hold on to it. You I'd could still go back book. to your textiles and, <laughs> and cut some I can more. always knit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can I can always, always knit. knit. <laughs> no, but it's, it's very true that it's a universal story because, I mean, as you say, many people can relate. And this doesn't go away, unfortunately. I mean, many people have experiences of, of this kind. And uh, I think that uh, talking about your very visual way of, uh, of writing, there's also something about sound. Mm -hmm. I have written down here, this is why I have this paper, that there's something about footwear. Yes. There are uh, wellies that mustn't disappear in, mm -hmm. in some sandy hole, and uh, there's a clacking of heels, mm -hmm. and, and when... Uh, Agnes' father is very ill and dying. She goes to the hospital and, and one of her heels is without the rubber thing. So it makes a sound like a screech of hard times. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there's, of course, Shaggy walking around trying to walk like a normal, as if the clacking could make him more normal. Mm -hmm. What is this thing about the shoes? <laughs> um, actually, thank you for asking that. I've never been asked that before. Um, and so now I'm like, just, just stall them a minute while I think of an answer. Um, actually, the, the scene, especially when Agnes goes to a hospital, is one of my favorites. And that little part about the shoes, because before they go to the hospital, they spend a lot of time coloring in Agnes's shoes. She has black painted shoes. They take a bingo marker and they cover in all the scuffs. She wouldn't leave the house without her fur coat or her good coat and her hair done but she betrays herself because as she goes through the hospital, the plastic thing has worn off on her left. And so you can hear the nail or the metal 
pronged scrape on the floor. And and that's, uh, again, about pride and shame and, you know, and how the truth will come out anyway. But shoes for me and clothing, I think, broader for me was is such a an interesting thing because it was always used uh, to conceal things growing up or to reveal things or to try and project things about ourselves that maybe we truly weren't. And so clothing for me and for the characters is really important to how they feel about themselves. And, and um, you know, I only set out to write an incredibly intimate story. It's a love story to me, but it's people see the book as a very political book. I didn't have any desire to do that. But you can't set a book in 1980s Glasgow and not have it be political. But all the politics in the book for me happen on the body. They're really on this mother's body, on this little boy's body. And and I think that's often the way when you don't have much. And and the politics are just about how you care for each other too. The body is, it's not always uh, violence against the body. It's about being tender. And clothes are an extension of that. You know, Shuggy helps his mother take off her tights when she can't do it. A you special know. kind of tights. A special, yep. They're, they're always black, uh, semi-sheer, semi-matte, uh, you know, pretty pollies. You know, she has a very special thing and, you know, she would never be seen bare-legged, that kind of thing. You know, the, all these details matter to the characters because they reveal or conceal something. You have an education in textiles. Mm -hmm. It was not your first wish, was it? Mm -mm. It wasn't. I feel terrible saying that because I've had a wonderful <laughs> career in textiles and I love them deeply, but I wanted to be a writer as a little boy, you know. I didn't have any books at home. I grew up in a house without books, but it wasn't especially unusual. That's not a sad thing, I don't think, because the boys, the kids around me didn't have books either. It didn't make us any less empathetic or curious or, or creative. It's just sometimes you don't have books. But also my schooling and my youth was so disrupted between the bullying and between my mother's addiction that I couldn't concentrate at school. And so it was only really after my mother's death that the teachers could really sit me down for a protracted period of time and put books in front of me. But by the time I discover books at 17, it's too late for me to study English. And also, you know, that seemed like a very haughty thing for a working class boy to aspire to. And so I went into textiles instead, and I'm so grateful for it because it's taught me to be creative in many other ways. Um, but really, writing Shuggy Bane is about you know, a dream that I'd furloughed or that I had to fulfill since I was a, a young boy. But maybe you couldn't have written, I mean, the lack of, you've had the clothes, mm. but you haven't had the literature, so maybe the, the textiles are your material as a writer. Yeah, yeah, it certainly, textiles give you a love of craft, and writing is about craft, and if you know that if you can focus on the smallest detail and then repeat it in a way, it builds into a larger tapestry, a larger book, and so it gave me a, a certain amount of discipline, and also it made me pay attention to things, as you spoke about earlier, that are contrasting or juxtaposed, or where there's tension, or where something, uh, you know, doesn't balance, and, and those are really helpful skills to have as a writer. When you when you sit down to write a novel and you don't think it's a novel, it's just something you write for yourself. When does it become a novel to you? <laughs> you know, when I gave my the only person who read the book over ten years was actually my husband. And when I gave him the, I'm so grateful to him. But when I gave him the manuscript, it was in two legal binders because it was huge, <laughs> and and I didn't know then it was a novel. And the poor guy, you know, it speaks to the the depth of his faith and his love. I think he starts to be very thoughtful and try and help me edit the book. And he gets about 100 pages in, you know, with very detailed comments. And then he just starts to go, Ugh. He literally <laughs> writes in the margin, stop it. Like, you know, nobody cares. And like in a very brutal way. And actually my editor's sitting there at the moment. Please don't ever do that. Um, but like he just, he couldn't keep up. But it was really at that point. And for a minute, actually, when I got his notes back, I couldn't look at the book because it, I felt violated in a little way. Mm. It was a super personal thing. And I'd asked him to do it, and then I was angry at him that he'd done yeah. it. And, like, our, our marriage was, you know, on the rocks. That, and um, But it took me about six months to open it and to sit down and be like, okay, I can do this. And the strange thing about the book, if it was 900, 1,600 pages, and then it ended up as 500 pages, the story never changed. It never, <laughs> it never changed. So he was a good editor. Yeah, <laughs> it just distilled. Yeah. Um, I, I learned how to get rid of things that were not necessary to the, mm. to the narrative. And the book just became tighter and tighter and tighter. And actually, it was 500 pages when I sent it out for, sub, for submission. 
and it was 400 pages, 450 pages printed. So nobody had to read that 1600 page right. manuscript other than my <laughs> husband. That's how you know you've married the right person. Yes. Give them, just try it yourself. Congratulations. Yeah, try it yourself. Yeah. No toxic man masculinity there. No toxic masculinity. Yeah. I think he, yeah, I think he packed his bag several times though. It, you've, <laughs> you've, you've given up on the textiles. And you now are a full-time writer. I am. You're already into your third novel? Yeah, I'm working on my third at the moment. My next novel publishes next April in English. That's amazing. Thank you. It's, I mean, that's wonderful. You, you've, you've completely changed your life. Thank you. You sat in the secrecy and the, I don't know when you did it, because I read that when you were working at Calvin Klein's, you worked from Aiden. 8 a.m. till 9 or 10 or 12 in the evening. Yeah, 4 a.m. often. 4 a.m. Yeah. often, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, that was part of the reason why it took 10 years to write, I think. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> uh, but it was, a, it was actually, you know, it was a good lesson as a writer because it, I found that... Um, I had to I had to do it and I had to figure out how to do it. So sometimes I wrote on the subway. I had 15 minutes in the morning, commute to work. I used to love flying somewhere, especially. <laughs> they used to send me often to factories in the Far East and that was 16 hours where no one could reach you. Fantastic. That was like a writer's <laughs> retreat. And they would say, who wants to go and solve this problem in, in Guangzhou? And the hand would go up and I'll go. Um, and so it was really, you just have to do it. And I think if you're going to do it, you will do it. Um, but my husband was instrumental as well. You know, I ruined a lot of family vacations when we had two weeks off. Not ruined, but he would want to go see the world and I would want to just write. And he allowed me to do that. You know, he mm. would sort of just feed me and then leave me alone. <laughs> and, you know, and so he, I'm really lucky. I'm really, really mm. lucky. But the second novel I had finished before Shuggy was long listed for the Booker. And I'm glad I did because I, at least I got to write from that place of personal pleasure, I guess, without any expectations. Pleasure and hardships, because I mean, it hasn't all been pleasure. It cannot all have been pleasure to revisit some scenes or I mean, even if it's not your story, parts of it will have resemblances. And so something must also have been a little Painful. How did you get around that? Yeah, it was it was frequently painful, but I found overall it was actually incredibly comforting. Uh, cathartic, maybe, but I, I took a awful lot of comfort. I used to love, like, I used to anticipate getting back to the desk and just hearing what Agnes and Shuggy would say, because I was trying to recreate a world that was gone. You know, both my own mother was dead, and because I was drawing on her for uh, inspiration, it was a pleasure to be around Agnes, even in hard times, <laughs> to memorialize not just the bad things that might happen with addiction, but the pride, the way she walked into her room, the way, you know, all the funny little idiosyncratic things that I knew uh, her to do. So I loved reading the book. I, I'm aware I'm traumatizing a lot of readers, <laughs> but but I feel great. So <laughs> so uh, let me uh, pass that along to you. That's uh, you're welcome. But um, uh, I, I actually found it really cathartic, and I found it part of the reason why it took ten years is because I couldn't say goodbye. The book was finished much earlier than I could let it go. But there came a point in my writing career where it, it, writing, it was like pulling me through my day. Mm. It was like a sail. And then it became an anchor because I couldn't move on to something else because I kept going back. I kept going back. And so I had to say goodbye. I had to almost have a funeral for the characters and, and pass them along. And then, of course, a pandemic happens <laughs> and you publish your book and then you're stuck at home and your book's running wild all over the place. And that's a really weird feeling because I feel very protective of the characters. Mm. And to not be able to follow them out into the world was, was really strange. But that is the thing about novels. They mm -hmm. live on their own when you let them go. They do. It's like children, I suppose. Yeah. I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. How sad. But I mean, <laughs> the good thing is you can you can write more novels. I can't have more children. It's too late. But, <laughs> but it's uh, the next novel you wrote, did some of the 400 pages you took out go into the next novel? It did not. 
in fact, uh, because we I believe... We will never in, know what happened. <laughs> I believe in torture as a writer. Um, I believe in making it really difficult on yourself. Honestly, seriously, none of the pages went into it. But um, Shuggy asked me a question. The novel asked me a question as a writer, and I couldn't answer it in Shuggy. And it stems around the scene where Agnes makes a terrible bargain with the man that lives across the road with her to try and take Shuggy away and teach him to fish and go with her boys. And he welshes on the deal. And it made me think about all the times in my own youth where it was believed the safest place for a young boy was just in the company of men. You know, and it was a good thing. They'll teach you sport, they'll teach you other stuff. And so we leave Shuggy at, that just stuck in my mind, that chapter, and I wanted to do so much more, but it took you away from Shuggy and Agnes. Um, and the book, at the end of the book, not to spoil it, we leave Shuggy on the brink of manhood. His greatest love in his life is his mother. He doesn't, we don't yet see him with another love affair. And I wanted to go back and write about queer love, but from a working class perspective, because I think there's excellent queer literature, but it didn't always intersect with the class I understood and the experience I understood. So it's a love story, almost like a Glaswegian Romeo and Juliet, about two young men who are very involved in gang violence and in petty crime and are separated by the sectarian divide. And they just find a place of belonging with each other. They just find a tenderness. But it becomes incredibly dangerous for them. And that so, sounds more like West Side Story. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, sure. I, and actually, there's no dancing in it. so. <laughs> but there's also no poison, so maybe it's not Romeo and Juliet. Um, and no balconies. I don't know what it's like. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, but it's a love story, and I wanted to celebrate like queer love for young working-class men. You are going back to Glasgow soon mm -hmm. for the first time, mm -hmm. I guess, since you... Yeah. Publish. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit of your feelings about going back. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, you know, I'm. It's 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 lots of wonderful feelings. Uh, the book. I'm so proud of how Glaswegians have celebrated the book. How British people have. How it's sort of um, a lot of people have taken it to their heart. And there's no bigger compliment for me than when someone says, "Oh, I know someone like Eugene or Agnes," or "I understand that." But I'm also anxious. I haven't been home since the book published in the UK because of the pandemic. It's the longest I've never been home. I live in New York. Um, uh, and so I'm ready to get home. I'm ready to see my family. I haven't spoken to my sister properly. You know, there's lots of small things there. So it's just, you know, I'm excited. I understand that you're excited, but I would also think that you were nervous because, I mean, it's, it's, it's not your story, but it's part of your story. It's not the now, it's the then, but people will be living who were there. For mm -hmm. instance, maybe this boy mm -hmm. on this amazing picture, Isn't which is, amazing? Yeah, it is an amazing picture, the, the picture, on, uh, it's it's really, uh, yeah. it's like a, uh, I don't know, a half, half crucifixion of a, of a very uh, sensitive boy. Yeah, and it's an, it, there is no Photoshop in this photo at all. <laughs> this is an actual photograph. It's actually um, Easter House, which was a new housing development built on the outskirts of Glasgow that seemed so healthful and positive when it was built. And then, like many things that didn't have enough amenities or were very isolated from labor, um, became a sink estate, and you can see that in the in the photograph. And this is taken at the exact same time Shuggy would have been that age, although this is not the neighborhood Shuggy particularly lives in. But one of the things that was important to me in the book, and one of the joys, a perverse word to say about writing this story, was that there's lots of people who went through Shuggy's story. Mm. And I wanted to show that several times in the book where you see the character of Annie, uh, who's suffering something with her father, and then at the end you see Leanne, who is really Shuggy's first friend, and they're yeah. going to have a long, happy life as friends together. But why Leanne was important for me at the end is because I wanted the reader to come to the point where they're like, we are finishing Shuggy's story, but I don't want you to think Shuggy's is the only story. Leanne is, has the same experience, and there's so many kids. And that's been one of the powerful things about the book is there's actually lots of people who live like this and who this is their experience as it was mine. And that's... Um, been a wonderful thing and a sad thing to connect with. It's been, it's been lots of things. But, you know, I think if it had been a middle-class narrative, maybe this one family would have had a tough time. Everyone else would have been getting on with their thing. <laughs> but lots of people had a tough time. And, uh, you know... Uh, hmm. This is also why the... the I mean, you said before that having a, an, an addiction problem was something you kept inside. But at the mm -hmm. same time, the drinking was quite heavy 
I mean, in almost every household. So the line between addiction and, and just drinking was perhaps a bit more blurred. Absolutely. I mean, it's Scotland. Uh, I've been told Denmark likes to drink, but Scotland likes to drink. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to uh, insult anybody, but yeah, I won't tell you who told me that. But uh, but but Scotland's certainly a heavy drinking, you know, nation. We like to we like to enjoy alcohol. And um, one of the things that I had to discover through writing the book was in sort of speaking to people who suffered with alcoholism, speaking to people who knew my mother when she was a young woman. I was when I wrote the first draft, I was determined to know the moment they knew she had a problem. When did it yeah. go wrong? Like, because most of my adult life has been about the desire to go back and find that moment and erase it. Like I could travel through time and, and just to, like help her at that moment. Um, but no one could say it because nobody knew. And when a good time and a bad time sort of change, there isn't necessarily a break line. There's not a, an event perhaps that happens. It can be a very slow sinking or it can creep up on you. And so I had to go back and actually rewrite much of the book to not give Agnes this sort of uh, ground-level mm. event that made her turn to alcohol, but just to always have it be a part of her life. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. And I think that was more truthful for a lot of people. Um, but one of the reasons why it took 10 years to write the book was I had to come to a place of empathy for a lot of the characters in the book and understand what got them there. Mm. I could understand how a character like Shuggy felt, but I didn't necessarily understand why would a mother turn to alcoholism? Why didn't she see hope in the same way that her children saw hope? Why were the men doing that? And when I started the book at 32, I was a different man than I was when I finished it at 42. And I matured as a writer. I also matured as a person. So this is probably the best reason why this is such a wonderful novel. It's that you have, you've lived with the characters, have you understood them, we understand them. It's, it's, it's a very sad story, but it's not a sad book. Mm -hmm. That is what I call a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I really want to thank you for coming and talking to us. It's been wonderful. If you haven't read it, read it. If you've read it, read it again. <laughs> I hope you'll be coming back. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Douglas Stewart visited the Louisiana Literature Festival in 2021, where he was interviewed by Sunarifia. The interview was edited by myself. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Christian Lund. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. I'm Pike Melinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>